you're about to become the mayor of the fifth largest city in the United States of America, birthplace of freedom, liberty, and democracy. Holy. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm sitting down with the 98th mayor of Philadelphia, Michael Nutter. When Mayor Nutter decided to run for mayor, the odds were stacked against his campaign. I took a poll in 2006. The election was in May of 2007. My own poll told me that I couldn't win. And you still went for it? Yeah. Why? Because I thought I could win. In 2007, he ended up winning the election in a landslide with a plan to boost Philadelphia's graduation rate, lower its homicide count, and make the city greener. But any plan comes with surprise detours, twists, and turns. Mayor Michael Nutter's story is now on Philly Who. It's been more than three years since Michael Nutter has called himself the mayor of Philadelphia, but he's still out there chipping away at different problems in the city. He's got a seat with the Economic and Community Advisory Council, a team that works with the Federal Reserve Bank in Philly. He also teaches at Columbia University. In addition to that, he works as a national spokesperson for mayors in the United States. He served as a fellow for Drexel University, the Brookings Institution, and the University of Pennsylvania, the University of Chicago. He's appeared on CNN as a commentator, published an autobiography. There's more, but you get the point. Things get so busy that even little things like breakfast can end up forgotten. I just had breakfast. I had two Philly pretzels. Wow. <laughs> That's the most Philly thing ever. I love it. Part of the reason I was late. <laughs> really? And you usually eat breakfast at 3 p.m.? No. And please don't tell my wife that. <laughs> no. I took some calls during what would have been lunch. Yeah. And then I got really hungry. And I didn't <laughs> want to come on and be hangry. <laughs> so you were raised in West Philadelphia. We're at the 36th Street. Yeah. I grew up about 25 blocks from here. Wow. Can you tell me about the Philadelphia that you grew up in? So my parents married in 56. I was born in 57. They came from South Philadelphia. I grew up with my grandmother, uh, my mom's mother. We moved to, well, they moved <laughs> um, to 55th and Larchwood. I was born at Misericordia Hospital, two blocks down the street. And um, we were probably about the third black family on the block. I would say by the time I was around 10 or so, you know, you start to pay attention to things going on around you. There might have been three white families left. One of the strongholds in the community was the local pharmacy, Snydman's Pharmacy. That was a, a, a real stabilizing force, I guess you would, yeah. I would say, in the community. It was a Sims food market at the other end of the block. The drugstore was at 56 in Larchwood. The food market, which was an African-American family, uh, the Sims family, they were at 55th on the corner there. There was a German food market. There was a meat store. It sounds like a lot of small mom and pop type places. Yeah, all generally on corners, barbershop. All, I mean, all of the basics yeah. kind of right there in the neighborhood. Right. And then if you really needed to kind of go shopping, unless you're going to go downtown, you went to 69th Street. We'd usually take the L and I'd do some other shopping. I would say it was, um, I mean, not that I was 
paying attention to uh, demographics uh, <laughs> and economics uh, when I was uh, when You were I was looking younger. up voter profiles when yeah. you were 10? <laughs> no, not really. But, uh, you know, I'd say it was uh, probably a middle, middle class yeah. uh, neighborhood. Pretty much everybody worked. I think none of our parents had gone to college. And we were all really children of the 60s and 70s. What that meant was John Kennedy was killed when I was in first grade. I was 10 turning 11 when uh, uh, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy both mm-hmm. killed in 68, Malcolm X in 65. So, I mean, I, I knew what was going on. I was right. paying attention. Uh, Vietnam War, yeah. Man on the Moon. Transition to the 70s, that's high school. Graduated from uh, Catholic grade school, Transfiguration, and then went to St. Joe's Prep. Yeah. What types of things did you like to do growing up? Played a lot of football in the streets, football, basketball. Used to go to a boys club on uh, 22nd right off of Chestnut. You know, me and a group of guys, probably five or six of us, sometimes we'd take the bus, but a lot of times we would walk. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, 55th and Larchwood to 22nd and Chestnut. Damn. A lot of exercise. Yeah. <laughs> but for us, you know, quite frankly, it was really more about just exploring places outside of our neighborhood, the things that we would see and experience. You know, summertime, we spent a lot of time at the local rec center. It's a Sherwood Recreation Center. Gotcha. has now been renamed Christie. Spent a lot of time in the Cops Creek Library. I mean, it was also kind of a dangerous time. There's a lot of gang war activity in Philadelphia, really? uh, late 60s into the 70s. Yeah. So Did that touch your life at all? Yeah, a little bit. Well, mostly I learned how to run faster when I was yeah. a kid as a result of that kind of activity. I mean, there's no way that I could ever join a gang. Uh, my parents would have, I uh, wouldn't be sitting here with yeah. you today. <laughs> you know, 60th Street, Moon Gang, 59th Street, tons of gangs, and they were constantly kind of recruiting. And so, I mean, you really had to pay attention to where you went. I went to the prep for high school at 17th and Girard. I had to take three different forms of transportation, take the G bus to the L, the L to downtown, and then either uh, the number two or the Broad Street subway. You're going through a lot of neighborhoods and seeing a lot of people and just navigating to be safe was a little bit of a challenge. Uh, During some of those years, there were 60, 70 young people killed in uh, gang violence and warfare. And what was your outlook on Philadelphia at this time? This was also a time of great tension. Frank Rizzo had been police commissioner and then became mayor. There was a lot of concern if you were a young person. I mean, again, these are, you know, views of a preteen, teen, and and around that time, not the views that I shared that I have today based on experience. But at that time, a young person was worried not only about the gangs, but at times as a young African-American male, sometimes worried about the police. At that time, there were a lot of men in the community. And when you turned 11, 12, 13, there was something called the conversation, mostly with your dad, about what to do if you get stopped by the police, how to act, how to respond. And that basically you just wanted to survive the experience. No smart talk, no back talk. Yes, sir. No, sir. A lot of that. You know, I'd been stopped by the police you know, any number of times, uh, certainly as I got older and driving and, and, and that kind of thing. Based on other things I've done in life, I've come to greatly appreciate and respect the work that very brave men and women do, risking their lives to make sure the rest of us are safe. There's also no question that Philadelphia Police Department has significantly improved and transitioned, you know, from a time when you were often just really scared. Yeah. Do you remember having the conversation? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very specifically uh, with my father, sat me down and said, you know, we need to talk about something. You're 
you know, getting older, you're going to be out in the street, soon you'll be driving, and we need to talk about how you navigate right. uh, the streets of Philadelphia. And how did you feel when you were saying that? Also back in those days, I mean, it was a, a real tradition. There were guys who were like three or four years older than us, mm. you know, in the neighborhood that we call the old heads. Right. And so, although they actually weren't that old, right? So, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're 13, your old head might be 16. Right. They seemed really old back yeah. then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were just glad to be able to hang out with them. Right. And they would talk about, you know, their experiences, stuff with the police, stuff with girls, you know, all kinds of things. And so you, different levels of education yeah. from your parents. And then to some extent, you had more real conversation with your boys, yeah. you know, sitting on the steps, hanging on the corner, whatever the case may be. And that was, all of that was a part of the larger education right. of a young man, at least in the, you know, 60s, 70s in West Philly. Now, on that point, did you have any inkling that you might be one who can actually affect any sort of change about all this? At least in my early years, there was no reason for me to ever think that I would be doing any of the things that uh, I subsequently did. When I look back on it, maybe there were some signs and traits of, you know, future leadership. You know, I was usually, you know, when we would play games, football, halfball, uh, stickball, more oftentimes than I was usually captain of my team or I was a guy, it was me and somebody else. And, we, you know, I'll take this one, you take that one, I'll take that one, you know, that kind of thing. So there was some of that. I did well in school. So remember, I went to Catholic grade school yeah. in those days, primarily by nuns and a few lay teachers. I was in eighth grade. And um, we wanted whatever changes we wanted about whatever was going on. The details almost don't matter, right? But we had, you know, we had like a list of grievances, right? And so I'm organizing my classmates and at school, we would sell pretzels and candy and all that other kind of stuff. And the money went wherever the money went, right? So I did some quick calculations trying to figure out, you know, how much everybody spent per day, per week, per month. And I said, you know, until we get these changes, we're going to boycott. We're not buying any more pretzels. We're not buying any more candy. We're going to bring this place to its knees. My eighth grade teacher, Sister Barbara said, Michael, do I need to have a conversation with your parents about this activity that you're engaged in? No, Sister Barbara, we're good. Um, <laughs> so I think the protest lasted maybe about two days. <laughs> and that was your first political activity. <laughs> we were crushed. Uh, and then you went and had a pretzel. <laughs> right, then I went and bought another pretzel. <laughs> so then you wound up going to the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. At first to study, was it engineering or, or biomedic? I wanted to be a doctor. Not so much a physician, but I wanted to be a doctor. I had plans to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to open a medical equipment and devices company. Oh, okay. Wow. So That's super specific. But in the mind of a 17-year-old, was my theory was I needed to know and understand medicine Yeah. in order to be able to create these things and talk to the medical community, talk to doctors, et cetera, et cetera. So the theory was I'm going to go to medical school and learn medicine, but not necessarily see patients. I want to open a company. So a 17-year-old wanted to sell medical devices. Devices, equipment, surgical tools, instruments, Where did that come et cetera. From? Well, I had always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. I actually started a business uh, in my parents' home when I was 16. They never knew about it. <laughs> what was uh, it? Yeah, it was a, just a product services company. You know, if you see these ads on TV about like whatever, and it says use special code. Yeah. You know, XYZ. So it's kind of one of those companies um, where I would not have to store 
uh, inventory or product. Right. Uh, it's just getting orders. I had gotten a business license, had a fictitious name, did the advertisement in the newspaper. You were doing the thing. I was doing the thing. I had a phone in my room, my own phone in my room that I paid for because I was working right. at the drugstore. Your parents didn't know this? They knew about that. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bell Telephone had to kind of come to the house. Yeah. <laughs> like, how they got to pull that? Yeah. Out? Yeah, yeah. I said I needed to have my own phone Yeah. in my room, separate from my parents' phone. So I always kind of had that entrepreneurial interest. I wanted to help people. And I thought that that was a way to do that with, you know, new medical equipment and devices, et cetera, et cetera. So the recruiter, usually 20, 30 guys would often get accepted to Penn out of the prep. And she said, you know, fact of the matter is, is that the engineering school is trying to really step up their efforts to diversify their matriculation, their students. You have an interest already in engineering and science. I did very well in science in high school. I want to emphasize it very well in high school <laughs> science. I got to admit it. And I was a biomedical engineering major, which was relatively new in the mid 70s. My uh, first class was chemistry, uh, either one or three, whatever the designation was. Yeah. And by mid semester, it was pretty clear a first day of class, the room is packed, every seat is filled, the students are sitting on the floor in the aisles, et cetera, et cetera. By mid-semester, you could sit anywhere you want. Wow. So it really is a weeding out yeah. uh, kind of process. But more importantly, at least for me, um, the issue was that I was clearly on my way to failing the course. Yeah. And then one day when I was sitting in class, and I looked up, you know, it was a big table of elements chart. And I looked up at it and just like an epiphany, uh, you know, a moment. And I just looked at it and I said, you know, I really don't give a damn about the table of elements. <laughs> it was in that moment that I realized that uh, I was not going to be a doctor. So I dropped a course and then immediately tried to transfer to Wharton because if I'm not going to be a doctor and I do really want to be an entrepreneur, business. why not go to the best business school in the country, if not the world? Right? Yeah. So the slight flaw in the plan was by dropping the chemistry course, when I tried to transfer, Wharton said, we're not going to accept your transfer request because you did not maintain a full course load. You learn a lot on the way yeah. to trying to be slick. So they rejected my application. Then the engineering school found out that I tried to transfer. And so they, they sent me a note saying, we know you tried to transfer. And if you do that again, we're going to kick you out of school. So I said, oh, okay, this is getting more interesting. Welcome to the big leagues. Second semester, freshman year, I'm still in the engineering school, knowing that I really don't want to be there. Wow. So I tried to transfer again. Second application was rejected also for some reason. May have had something to do with grades. Not sure. Way, way down the line, I did transfer uh, into Warden, and I was a the entrepreneurial management major. Wow. So yeah. so did they not find out the second time? Because they said you're gonna, they were going to kick you out, right? <laughs> when I went to try to transfer the second time to Warden, I did a double transfer application. And the other one was to the uh, School of Arts and Sciences. Oh. They have a more space, more students, slightly higher acceptance rate. So Wharton rejected my application. Arts and Sciences approved my application. So I left engineering and went to Arts and Sciences and then just continued to take a whole bunch of Wharton courses um, until they sent me a note saying, we notice you keep taking all these Wharton courses. You know, you're not a Wharton student. By the way, you haven't declared a major. So I said, okay. I'll be an economics major because the economics major and all the courses are over the Wharton School. Right. So I started learning about systems yeah. and strategy. Uh, and so I think ultimately the number one thing I learned through all of that process was really how to think, yeah. know the rules, 
push the envelope a little bit and it helps to, uh, you know, know a few people who yeah. can help guide you along the way. There's always a way. Now it's around this time that Mixmaster Mike came to be. Is that right? This is true. Um, so I remember I mentioned my friend, Robert Bonham. Yeah. So we go to Penn together, roommate together while we were at Penn. In the summer of 76, Robert's father, Ben, opened the first black-owned discotheque called the Impulse Discotheque at Broad and Germantown in North Philadelphia. He closed a place that was called the Cadillac Club, which was a fantastic nightclub where, at the time, not so well-known artists like Aretha Franklin, Billy Paul, Lou Rawls, and a bunch of others performed, closed it gutted it out, and then turned it into uh, the Impulse Discotheque. And Robert and I started working there in the summer of 76, shortly after it opened, cleaning the floors, cleaning the carpet, ashtrays, trash, stocked the bar, ice. We had house DJs who came in like around 10 o'clock, but the party really started around 7 or 8. So whichever one of us was working, we played records until the house DJs came in. And that's led to the creation uh, and debut of Mix Master Mike. Now, would you eventually start taking DJ a little more seriously or was it, did it continue to be? No, it was, it was, it was only at the club, at that one club, but it's really kind of funny. There are people in Philadelphia who claim that they were at any number of parties that I DJed all over the city, which I... Truly find fascinating uh, because I didn't own any, you know, equipment, records or (laughs) or anything. I only played at one place. It was a ton of fun. And, uh, you know, there is this saying uh, that you should never let your schooling interfere with your education. I didn't know that saying at the time, uh, but clearly, apparently I was living by that uh, philosophy. This was a club that was geared toward 30 plus year old crowd. And we were 19 years old. Wow. So, yeah. Oh, you were getting schooled. I was definitely getting schooled. Now. I think I read that it was there that you started getting the taste of like true politics. Is that right? It is. How is um, that? So again, this is uh, mid to late 70s yeah. into the 80s. There was a rise in black political engagement here in the city. Senator Hardy Williams, father of state Senator Anthony, yeah. Charlie Bowser, John White Sr., Dave Richardson, Bill Gray, Marion Tasco. Augusta Clark, John Anderson, I mean, all of these people were stars or rising stars in the black community. Charlie Bowser had run for mayor, Hardy Williams had run for mayor, and African-American candidates, some were winning and some not, but getting close, et cetera, et cetera. When the club opened, the Impulse, many of them had events and fundraisers uh, at the Impulse Discotheque right. um, because it was at Broad Germantown and it was a black-owned club. So I met and saw up close a lot of these folks uh, at, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, and would then read about some of them and see them on TV or whatever the case may be. Politics was not the Nutter family business or anything. Nobody was in government. I paid a lot of attention to American government, watched TV, Watergate hearings, Vietnam War, et cetera, et cetera. So I always had an interest, but never thought about ever being involved in politics. But it was at the club. Seeing these folks, listening to them, hearing what people were doing certainly created a lot of interest. And then, um, you know, graduated from college, went to work at Xerox, 17th and Market. While I was at Xerox, I was still working at the nightclub. Had You're two full-time duty. jobs. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'd leave Xerox five, six o'clock, go to the club, stay till two, two thirty, and then back to work. Sheesh. Yeah. About 21 months in at Xerox, I decided 
well, there had been a series of promotions and, and all kinds of things, staff changes. And I decided that since they didn't see the, the brilliance of, you know, making me a senior vice president at 24 years old, <laughs> uh, that I had really no future at this company. So yeah. I quit. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> I think so, we all I don't Why know. aren't you putting me in charge? I know everything. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so uh, just slightly outrageous. So now I had daytime hours free because I was just working at the club. And um, started attending city council meetings just to kind of see what was going on down there. Robert and I, we had, you know, visions of grandeur and uh, that we were going to become kind of real estate moguls. So we started going to sheriff sales. We had these ideas that we're going to buy some properties, you know, cheap. And then we hadn't exactly worked out who was going to fix them up (laughs) because it wasn't going to be either one of us. Question mark, question Uh, mark, question mark. Okay. Well, we're not going to do that, but let's, since we're in the building, let's go check out city council, see what's going on down there. And that was kind of wild and crazy in the early eighties. Abscam had happened. Uh, there was all kinds of consternation and fights down there. It was literal figurative. Wow. And so I said, well, you know, this is kind of interesting. And then I ran into a couple of people at the city council session that I'd met while I was at the nightclub. Right. So one day I went to see uh, one of the city councilmen, John White, junior, uh, whose father was heavily involved in the black empowerment movement. And I said, you know, this, all this political stuff, I mean, it seems really interesting to me. Um, but you know, how do you get involved? I mean, how do you get started? And we talked about a few things and then he said, well, where do you live? And I said, I'm out in the Winfield section. He said, Oh, my next door neighbor lives out there. He's a councilman at large, uh, my best friend down here. He's looking to recruit some people to, you know, for his organization. You should go next door and talk to him. So I said, okay. Went next door, knocked on the door. I had no idea what he looked like, never heard of him, nothing. And of course, they knew even less about me, yeah. as in less than zero. He saw me. Wow. He saw me. And we started talking. And he ultimately said, okay, well, where exactly do you live? And I, I told him I live right down on um, Conchacan Avenue, not too far from uh, where... Um, 6ABC is. And he said, well, I really need somebody right where you live to run for this local neighborhood office to support my efforts to be more involved in the Democratic Party. He wanted to become the ward leader in the 52nd Ward. So I said, well, I'd be interested in that. No way. So he said, okay. So I ran. This lady crushed me, Lillian Levinsky. She was like, probably in her 70s. I was like 24 or something like that. And most of the people who lived in the little area where we lived were much older. People who had uh, date of birth like 1901, 1898. Uh, And like, here's this 24-year-old kid. Like, why are you at my door? He then did not win the ward leader position that he was going for. So that was 82. 83 is time for him to run for re-election. Bill Green... Mayor Green decides not to run for re-election in 83, which then set up this classic electoral battle, Wilson Good and Frank Rizzo in 1983. And then my guy was running for re-election, Councilman Anderson, who then asked me to be his campaign manager. Of course, I thought it was absurd because I knew nothing about that and actually said no. Um, you did? Yeah. I, I don't know anything about this. Why did he ask you? I think for a couple of reasons. I had volunteered in the office, you know, young guy, interested, blah, blah, blah. It was the youth and the energy and I right. had the interest. I mean, there were other people around. I mean, senior, like serious, legitimate people and they helped me and coached me and all that. So... As I said, he was a councilman at large and uh, we traveled all over the city. Now, I've 
been in Philadelphia all my life, but we went to places in Philly that I'd never seen and never heard about, didn't know what they were like or anything. And I mean, it was an incredible eye-opening experience, but also it was a real window into what public service is all about. And I mean, he was just a really good guy. So he won the Democratic primary uh, that May was a good one. I mean, this was like a big election in Philadelphia. And uh, I decided on election night that this is what I want to do. Wow. And at that point, yeah. you said, this is my it career. 25 turning 26. Yeah. Wow. It was what, only a few years later that you then ran for city council. So the summer of 83, after the councilman won the Democratic primary, we talked and we developed a game plan that I was going to run four years later for the district seat right. out in our neighborhood for the fourth district. He was at large, so I wouldn't be in that race, of course. And that in 1987, I would run uh, for city council. Unfortunately, he died five months after the election in October of 83. I did run in 87 against an incumbent, came close, uh, but lost. And then um, ran uh, four years after that in 91 in a rematch. It was incredible. Just a really, really great feeling. You know, we'd worked really, really hard. I didn't appreciate it at the time, of course. But, you know, as I say, uh, most of the time you learn more from a loss than from a win. Yeah. But I really hate losing. So, yeah. uh, you know, 80, the 87 loss was pretty tough. But You did it again. So you must have been, I mean, if you would have lost again, that would have hurt. Yeah, like a lot. The second time out, I mean, we raised more money than she did. I, The first campaign, I knocked on 10,000 doors. The second one, I knocked on 20,000 doors. Wow. Four of the five mayoral candidates endorsed my campaign. I mean, we were just really working our butts off. And I mean, I, I certainly felt that we had put ourselves in position yeah. uh, to uh, to be able to win. I thought we would win. But, you know, you can't take anything for granted. Right. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Now, at what point in that period did you start thinking that you might want to try to become the mayor of Philadelphia? I can, you know, fairly well pinpoint it. After the bug scandal in 2003, you know, the FBI found a bug in the mayor's office and all that controversy. And that was so tremendously embarrassing. And then the, all the subsequent indictments and all the other things that were going on. Homicide rate was going up in the early 2000s as compared to most other cities. It was going down. So I worked on domestic partnership legislation, police advisory commission, ethics reform and campaign finance reform, just a bunch of other things. And, you know, I was a district councilman, so, yeah. you know, a fair amount of activity in the yeah. district. You know, and I was getting into my late 40s, been on council for 10, 11, 12 years. And so, yeah, you just kind of get to a point, what do you think you want to do? In the aftermath of all the scandals on the ethics side, and then just really kind of taking stock of the incumbent mayor, if they run for re-election, if I don't run now, uh, somebody wins and they'll be there eight. So that means I'm sitting on the council floor for another eight years complaining about yeah. you know, whatever they're doing or not doing. I thought I might kind of be ready. I had some ideas. I was committed to safety and education and jobs. And I just said, you know, I think I'm just going to take a chance. Yeah. Now, going into that primary, I think I read that there were five, really five candidates. Five of us, yeah. What were your odds, would you say, at that point? I took a poll in 2006. The election was in May of 2007. Right. My own poll told me that I couldn't win. Pretty much no matter who ran, in a five-way race, you would probably be last. And you still went for it? Yeah. Why? Because I thought I could win. You know, a poll is a snapshot in time of kind of where people are and what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. I often talk about this with young people about, you know, their lives and their futures. And what I say is, I uh, usually ask, you know, does anybody in the class know what an EKG is? 
and you know, a couple of hands will go up and it says something about your heart. And uh, yeah, so but they've not developed a test yet that can determine your heart, your soul, your drive, your commitment, your focus. No one was ever going to outwork me in that race. I was going to get up earlier than anybody else. I'd stay up later than anybody else. I'd knock on more doors if I had to. I'd go to more transit stops. I uh, thought we could raise the money. And so, you know, Paul can't tell you that. Crime was up. Corruption was an issue. I had actually done some things in both of those areas. And so my issue was, even though I'd been on council for 14 years, I was only a district councilman. There's a whole big city out there. It's only a tenth of the city. Yep. And so part of it was a lot of people just didn't know who I was. Right. Well, that's why I resigned early in order to be a full-time candidate right. longer and be out on the field. So I was the first announced. The poll was in May. I resigned in June. And right after uh, 4th of July, I announced that I was running for mayor. So I was the first one out there. Right. And the legend has it that you were out there putting in 20-hour days, talking to Pretty people, much. handing out nutter butters, right? Yeah, nutter butters. When did you feel the tide turn? Things changed pretty dramatically for us when the commercial with our daughter, Olivia, aired. It was the third commercial that we ran, and that commercial really did change things for us. People started paying attention. They thought she was beautiful. She is. She told my story in 30 seconds better than I could in an hour. Wow. She's got a family, takes his daughter to school, cares about public education, Grew up in a row house in Philly. I don't yeah. know where people thought I grew up, but yeah. grew up in a row house in Philly. <laughs> you know, so I think sometimes, you know, all these credentials and things can, if people don't really know who you are, you know, they said, well, we went to a prep school. Mm -hmm. He went to the University of Pennsylvania. You know, he's some other guy. Um, no, I'm the guy that grew up at 55th of Larchwood. There were 70 uh, mayoral forums. I participated in 68 of them. You know, Neil Oxman and the J.J. Balaban and the team at the campaign group, uh, did a fantastic job. I had the most passionate staff and volunteers. Um, and I think people really did want a change. Yeah. Somehow the message broke through. And then our polling told us that I was a lot of people's second choice, only because they didn't think I could win, so they didn't want to waste their vote. And then an independent poll came out in April that said it was a two-point race between me and Tom Knox. Wow. And then things dramatically shifted. Folks said, oh, the guy actually could win. I said, yeah, if you vote for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, more money started pouring in and right. we were able to keep more ads on TV and all that. And then probably about two weeks out, our poster told me, to like four of us, that based on current projections, you're going to win. And your first thought? Ignore that. And <laughs> keep working. <laughs> you got two weeks left. <laughs> so you do. You can you do wind, anything for two weeks. Right. So you wind up winning. You, yeah. You Take the reins in yeah. early 2008. You're given the keys to the fifth largest city in the country. I'm somebody who thought he'd get into politics, yeah. no background in politics. It's it a frightening prospect. What's that like? As I was standing on the stage and, you know, the Academy of Music, which is an incredible venue, just being there, let yeah. alone being on the stage, right? right. So, and I've been sworn in, you know, four times before that and, and, and taken the oath. And But as I was standing there, and I know the oath well and the judge is reading it and then you repeat it and, you know, left hand on the Bible, right hand up in the air. And it was so surreal. And with every word in my head, I was thinking, you're about to become the mayor of the fifth largest city in the United States of America, birthplace of freedom, liberty and democracy. Holy. And my hand was kind of shaking a little bit. 
as I was saying it, like I said, I know it well. So, you know, and I know when it's coming to an end. And after I say that last word, you're it. This is it. The reason I'm still amazed, even, you know, all these years later, is I don't see how a little kid from 55th and Larchwood ends up being mayor of his hometown. I don't know what that path was. I don't know. I just don't know how something like that really happened. And I've been very, very fortunate, very blessed. You wound up taking the reins. Your first term wound up being the Great Recession. Yeah. I'm not the best on timing. (laughs) (laughs) So what is that like? That had to have been a trying time. It was unlike anything. I mean, it was two and a half years easily of just torture. You know, I had championed the cause to cut taxes during pretty much all my city council career. I'm now the guy that's raising people's taxes four years in a row. Uh, We're cutting services. We're raising fees and fines and taxes and making all kinds of decisions that you really don't want to make. But, you know, the lesson there is you don't always get to do what you want to do. I mean, there's no way to plan for the worst recession since the Great Depression, right? But there were some lessons learned. And when I came into office in 92 as a city council member, the city had its own financial crisis, had nothing to do with the country or the world or anything else. We had our own. And I did go through that experience and I did learn some things. And we used some of those same strategies and tactics during our trying time. The reason we, I, us were able to get through it is because I had just the most fantastic team of people to work with. And ultimately for any organization, its success is a function of the people uh, who are around, who are involved, who are committed. And I had a totally dedicated team uh, of folks who were empowered to make decisions, uh, certainly empowered to, uh, to tell me no or tell me I was wrong. Uh, I pretty much lost most battles uh, to uh, to them because they were smarter. And we respected each other and trusted each other. Yeah. And that, I think, made all the difference in the world. Turn number two was the opposite, right? <laughs> Prosperity, yeah. you'd say. They, things, right? You know, things, things kind of bottomed, if you will, uh, 10 into 11. Right. I mean, we just found what I would often refer to as the new normal. We weren't going down. We, right. we, we stabilized. Leveled off. And then we could see it. Uh, we could see it in the numbers. Going into 2012, tax collections were up. The job market was starting to come back. People were still moving to Philadelphia. We could start making finally some investments. We restarted the tax cut program, uh, wage tax reduction uh, program rather. And you could just feel a certain level of optimism. Rating agencies, because of our fiscal discipline, actually upgraded us uh, coming out of the recession. One of the few cities in the country to have that. We were at an A rating from all three rating agencies for the first time since the 70s. Wage tax uh, levels were at 30-year lows. And then we just started seeing all of this construction activity taking place and building permits. At the same time, um, 12 into 13 is when we had a huge drop in homicides. So in 2013, we were at 247, which was the lowest since 1967. And we kind of stayed in that range for the rest of my time. High school graduation rate was going up. Population growth continued uh, through that time. And uh, yeah, the second term was uh, was definitely definitely different yeah, you than come, the first so you, one. Yeah, you come towards the end of it and, and you see, yeah. you know, you see what, what you've gone through in the early stage and yeah. see these numbers improving the way that you dreamt for them to improve when you first ran to be mayor. Yeah. What goes to your head? I think you learned the tough, tough lesson of you can only control what you can control. 
No one could do anything about a worldwide recession. The question is, what do you do with what you have? How do you stay focused, not get distracted by all the noise and other activity out there? I said at the first inauguration that we needed as a goal to have a 30 to 50% reduction in homicides. That as a goal, we should be shooting for 80% high school graduation rate. That we could seek to increase our population by you know, nearly 75,000 people. That we needed more Philadelphians to get back to work. That we would be the number one green city in America and that we would run the government with integrity. When I left, we had a 32% reduction in homicides. We reached 68% high school graduation rate up from uh, the mid-50s. There were more Philadelphians working than had been in, in 20 years. I think we did clean up the government a good amount. No place is perfect. Philadelphia is recognized as one of the greenest, most sustainable, and leading-edge cities in the world. And we pretty much did the things that we said we were going to do. For me, that's a really good feeling. In your last press conference, you said, uh, I've become just much more personally emotional during the course of the last eight years. And I still don't know what that's about, but I found myself in any number of moments, possibly on the verge of tears. It's been a couple of years. Do you think you now know what that was? Maybe a little bit. I think it was a combination of, you know, my first full year in office, we lost uh, four police officers killed in the line of duty. Our daughter was 12 when I got elected and, you know, kind of watched her grow into a pretty mature teenager. That's a whole process uh, in and of itself. I watched and experienced a bunch of young people who came in you know, either to the campaign or to the government in their 20s and in many instances are now in their 30s as, as we're about to leave. Some of whom, you know, I performed their weddings, mm-hmm. um, watched them grow, um, saw the city that I love passionately transform to some extent right in my face. Just to know, you know, that you had an opportunity to serve. There is something really special, I think, about being mayor of your hometown. But for me, there was always something just a little extra because it's Philadelphia. And I do take seriously that it is the birthplace of freedom, liberty, and democracy. And so I think being mayor of Philadelphia is just a little more special than being mayor of just about anywhere else. And I think there's an extra level of responsibility. But like most Philadelphians, I mean, I'm very passionate uh, about this city and, and kind of rise and fall with the moods of the city. The fact of the matter is, is that 400,000 people who still struggle uh, with basic literacy, there are 300,000 folks of a previous criminal record. We have the highest poverty rate of the 10 largest cities in the United States of America, and we've been over 20% for now 40 years. You can't rest. You can't take it easy. You've got to maintain that passion. I've had to talk to parents and apologize to them for the death of a child because we didn't protect them properly and then try to catch the killer. I mean, there are so many things that are really seared in my heart and soul. The tragedy at 22nd and Market, the Amtrak derailment. We lost eight police officers in my eight years, Mm -hmm. killed in the line of duty, four firefighters, a PGW employee and a fleet manager. I was in the hospital room with every one of those families every time, every funeral, every gravesite. You know, I've seen a few things uh, during that time. And if they don't touch you emotionally, then, you know, I think there might be something wrong with you. Yeah. 
what always excites me about Philadelphia is our resilience, the passion that people have about this city. I saw that time and time and time again, even through the recession, when people were really upset with me. And I, <laughs> and I understood why. It was just their passion about the city uh, and what they want and what they expect. And I don't ever think that will wane or go away. Um, I think we need to stay very, very focused on issues of public safety, issues of education, income inequality and poverty. There are so many, many more people who want to, you know, fulfill their life potential, who right. want to be on the field, who want to be actively engaged. I'm on the Economic and Community Advisory Council for the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank uh, here in Philadelphia. And it is slightly bizarre, but there are actually more jobs available than there are people to take them. How does that work? Employers are finding it difficult to find employees. And there's a skill set mismatch right. for many of these jobs. But there's also, I think, a misnomer to some extent out in the community that many of these jobs, uh, good, still good jobs, don't necessarily require a four-year uh, degree. Right. There are certificates uh, that people can get. And so how we get that word out and how we let people know, I mean, they can move themselves and their families out of, you know, a, a challenging uh, economic circumstance. Yeah. You know, we hear these numbers, you know, unemployment's the lowest it's been in, you know, right. whatever, whatever. But we know uh, in West Philly and North Philly and South Philly, River Wards, uh, Upper North Philadelphia, we know that unemployment is 20, 30, 40 yep. percent. I mean, there are a ton of folks in the city who are not working. Yep. Uh, and so we have to figure out how to get, you know, that population into some of the jobs that exist. But yeah, there are a bunch of employers who cannot find employees. Right. Well, sometimes I wonder, shouldn't we also get the jobs to them, right? Because there's it's really well, a tale a, of two yeah. cities. People consider Philly, a lot of people just consider yeah. Philly just these yeah. few neighborhoods in between and there's way more to it. Yeah. And then just also sometimes the personal challenges that people have. You know, yes, I'd like to work, but, you know, how am I going to get there? Right. The jobs over here, obviously people can't see it's a podcast, but moving my hands around, you know, yeah. the jobs in one they part of the city, the daycare somewhere else, right. you know, oh, huge. transportation challenges. And, and then whatever the wage is, literally, is it worth it? Right. So I have a job, but now my costs could literally exceed, right. you know, kind of what I'm making. And so I'm the eternal optimist. Uh, I've seen this city in so many different ways and um, still. And you're, and you're here. Work, I'm here. Still working on this stuff. Yeah. I have a fellowship at the uh, University of Pennsylvania's uh, School of Social Policy and Practice. Actually, my wife and I are actively engaged in a project focused on income inequality and social mobility at Penn. And uh, you'll be hearing more about that you know, later this year into next year. But for me personally, I feel that much of that work is unfinished work yeah. on my part. And I've chosen to stay actively engaged in a different way in the public arena and uh, still want to help improve uh, the lives of others. I've been given a lot. And so I owe a whole lot back and it's a way for me to give back. Last thing, one message, every Philadelphian, what do you say? Go Eagles. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho and join the email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. Here's a very special thanks to Philly Who's patrons. Sam Schwartz, Josh Koppelman, Bob Moore, Alex Hillman, Vanessa Generelli, Ryan Fitzgerald, and Matt Glick. If you'd like to join them in supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Philly Who. Philly Who is a Q9 production. 
This episode was recorded in the Philly Who studio powered by CIC and was hosted and produced by me with associate production by Angela Gervasi and Jackson Neal, editing by Max Graham, artwork by Lauren Carhart, and a very special thanks to Luke Butler. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. See you next time.